Lord, we really are thankful that wretched creation-preferring hearts were not despised by the Redeemer and that he bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might bring us home to you and that you've given us a quickening to begin to love you as we ought and begin to treasure you as we ought and begin to see you and hear you and embrace you and value you and be satisfied in you and follow you as we ought. And we confess our abiding shortfall and our remaining corruption and indwelling sin. We hate it and we renounce it together and we ask for more help. We want to come through this conference more loving toward Christ and more loving toward people. We don't want to waste our lives in front of the mirror or in the man pools of the world. We want to dive into your inexhaustible glory and grace manifest in Jesus. So come and do a great, deep, decisive work for the glory of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. What does it look like, the unwasted life? If the gospel is the solution to conquer my objective, damnable position under a just wrath and holy God by rescuing me, so that it can be said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he has begun in sovereign grace and sanctification to transform this old blind, dead, man-loving, God-belittling heart into a God-loving, man-humbling, Christ-cherishing heart. What does it look like? Because the whole goal of life, the whole meaning of the life that counts, is to display the worth of Jesus Christ for others to see and cherish. That's why the universe exists. So that we might so live that we can demonstrate by the way we live that Jesus is more precious than life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life, Psalm 63.3. Which means there must be a way to live that looks like that rather than looking like you have the same value structure that everybody else has. So, a few texts to put that in biblical context and then as many of these 20 focuses of not wasting your life as we can manage. The big word, the biblical word, I think, of fleshing out how you make God look good, like a telescope, not a microscope. You're not using makeup to make Him look good. He doesn't need makeup. He needs windows. Is love for people. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail. This is Galatians 5, 6. But faith working through love. Now faith, my understanding, is that awakened sight of the glory of Christ in the gospel, the embracing of Him as Savior, Lord, and supreme treasure of our lives, that faith that is satisfied in Him spills over onto other people, and that spilling is called love. So all that I have found in Him, I want others to find in Him. Just as my treasuring Him shows Him to be valuable, I want other people, through my treasuring of Him, 
to experience His value so that their hearts are changed by the gospel and they begin to treasure Him the way I have begun to treasure Him. And so this bending outward, this horizontalization of my vertical delights in God is called love. Let me give you one text. I was going to give you two, but I'll just give you one. Let's go, if you have a Bible, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he's motivating the Corinthians with the way that the Macedonians responded to this appeal. And how he does it is most remarkable and is a beautiful picture of how they love people in this context. We want you to know, this is 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So that's northern Greece, and he's writing to Corinthians who are in southern Greece. And he, the first thing he wants them to know, the, the Corinthians to know, is what God did by sovereign grace up in Philippi, Thessalonica, and these little towns to the north. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, what did that grace do? Grace is powerful. Grace is not just God's leniency and His non-judgment. Grace is power moving into fallen lives and fixing them powerfully, overcoming all their resistance and saving them and transforming them. Now, what did it look like in Macedonia? Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. He didn't have to wrestle them like a horse or a mule to do this. They loved being generous. It was free. Now notice several things. Number one, he traces it all back to the grace of God. The grace of God came down on the Macedonians. The first effect on them is abundant Joy. See that in the middle of verse 2? For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. Joy in what? Circumstances? They got two counts against them here. Number one, in a severe test of affliction. These people are not having a better life because they became Christians. It's going worse for them. I don't believe in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Things go worse for you when you're a Christian, not better. Those who would live a godly life will be persecuted. 1 Timothy 3.12 Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's an instrument of execution. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And on and on and on, the promises go, it's going bad for you as a Christian. So I don't, I'm not selling anything here. I'm just calling you to a life that counts. Not an easy life. So, circumstance number one, which shows me that their joy, this, this overwhelming joy, was not in circumstance, is that there was affliction. Number two... Their extreme poverty have overflowed. So they not only are probably being persecuted, whatever these afflictions are that have risen because they became a Christian, they are not being made prosperous. Didn't fix their business. 
stock market didn't go up when they became Christians. They're still struggling financially. But these people are weird. Don't you want to be like these people? I love these people. I'm not very like these people. If my finances are struggling and people are mad at me, the word that people would usually describe me is not his abundance of joy. But that's what they experience. So what's wrong with us? This is, this is where we go when we're saved. Let's read it again now. I want you to know, verse 1, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. So there's the key. That's what we've got to feel. That's what we've got to experience. Got to know this. He's being gracious to me. He's loving me. He's forgiven me. He's taking away my condemnation. He's giving me deliverance from hell. He's taking away all my guilt. He's imputing a righteousness to me. How can I not delight in God? even if my finances are bad and even if there's affliction in my life. So whatever their circumstances were, that wasn't the source of their joy. The source of their joy was God. They had come to see God in the gospel. Circumstances didn't change, they got worse. I mean, they didn't change for the better, they got worse. And they were overflowing with joy. Now, question... What did it look like? Laughter? <laughs> Doesn't say so, maybe. Um, playing more cheerfully with your kids at night, even though the stock market hasn't gone up. But you're, you can be there now for your kids. Emotionally there, not in Wall Street. God's got that taken care of. I've got grace flowing around me like an ocean. I'm here for you tonight, maybe. Doesn't say that either. That is one of the effects. What it says is, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. These people have fallen out of love with money. Because it says... They pleaded for a second offering to be taken. Isn't that what it says? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Like, why do you need to beg Paul? That's why he's here. Must have been a second offering. These are strange people. Please, Paul... I know you think we've given all we should. Please let us give some more to the poor. Weird. Weird. You love your stuff? We love our stuff. We've got to be set free. California is not the least interested in your Christian prosperity. Not one whit. Nobody will be saved by seeing you prosper. Nobody. A lot of people will become Christian idolaters by seeing you prosper. Oh, you can become a Christian and you get rich? Get a better house? Get a better car? Get a better job? I'll become a Christian. That's not conversion. So, don't you see? I, I hate the prosperity gospel. I just got a note from Breaker Press, Breaker Publishing House, that I, I did my missions book with them, and I got a note. I'm so happy about this. And they said, you want to do a new edition, and would you add a chapter on the prosperity gospel? And I wrote to my assistant, David, and said, yes! <laughs> We're marketing this thing to Africa, Asia. Of course, we go there on our private jets. Shoo. Gather about 80,000 people in a stadium. Knock a few over with breath, pray over a few, and leave with our satchels filled. Are they being saved? Or are they falling in love with Western lifestyles? Oh, California, Minnesota. 
We've got so far to go. You know, you know what's going to make Jesus look valuable is when, because of how precious he is to you, you sacrifice for the good of others so that it looks to them like you must have treasure somewhere else than in your stuff. That's the only way. It's going to look like they should ask you a question, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? Has anybody ever asked you 1 Peter 3.15? The reason they don't ask is because you look like you're hoping in all the stuff they hope in. I'm speaking to myself. This is serious. How are you going to live a lifestyle in America? <laughs> Anywhere. West Virginia, Minneapolis, Central California. How are you going to live a lifestyle that to the world doesn't look like a carbon copy of what they value? I don't have all the answers there. I'm just pleading, God, do something here. Do something here. Because the world's not impressed with prosperous Christians. <laughs> just not. You want to do your religious thing on Sunday? I find it very boring. You can do that. Because I see no difference in your life at all. <laughs> and we think keeping the Ten Commandments impresses anybody? Who could care less whether you keep the Ten Commandments? They don't care whether you commit adultery. As long as you don't steal from them, don't kill them. Not doing these things, they do that. They do pretty well with the Ten Commandments. Not the first one and the last one, but they don't care about that. It's not impressive to be a good law keeper. What's impressive to people is sacrifice. Because sacrifice in the cause of love looks like you have a treasure different from the world. Okay, just one more text and then we're launching into these 20. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. So there it is, right? That's what we want for our lives. We want to live that way. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, there's something mysterious going on there because a lot of people see good deeds and do not give glory to God. <laughs> My city is filled with liberal pastors and liberal churches who do good deeds all day long and do not believe the Bible. They do not believe in the substitutionary atonement. They do not believe you need to believe in Jesus to be saved. I know these guys. Full of good deeds. That's what church means. You know why? Because it impresses the culture. It just worlds apart from Matthew 5.16 because God's not getting glory. What's wrong? What, what's the deal? Here's the deal. When it says, let your light so shine, what do you think that means? Is that just equivalent to deeds? You do the deed. You stop and you help somebody change their tire. Or you go over and you help somebody clean house because she's, you know, 10 months pregnant. Here's what I think let your light shine means. If you just contextually read back, backward, back, back, back. Let's, let's go back. That's verse 16 we started. We're going back to verse 12, and then we're going forward. So here, here's the way it sounds. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. Rejoice and be glad in that day. For great is your reward in heaven for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing to be cast out and be trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand that they may give light to all in the house. Now let your light shine that men may see your good deeds and give glory. Give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, in that train of thought, what's the light and the salt? I think the light and the salt are not just the deeds 
but the way the heart is working when the deeds are being done. Namely, rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven when you are being persecuted. I'll tell you what shines in the world. You're being beat up. Beat up by circumstances, disease, job situation. Beat up by people who don't understand you, don't care about you, don't like you. Beat up in a marriage. Beat up by kids who are walking away from Jesus. Beat up in a church where people don't trust you anymore. Beat up. And because you see the reward who is Jesus and the joy set before you, you don't murmur. You don't grumble. You don't criticize and do vengeance. You rejoice. Now when people see that, that's bright and salty. What is that? I've never seen that before. They've seen people happy with prosperity. The devil is happy when he's prosperous. But the devil is not happy when he's sacrificing because he's being beat up. And his reward in heaven is so great that he keeps rejoicing in God and has some resources to spill over onto people in love when he's surrounded by nothing but trouble. That's the miracle that I call salt and the miracle that I call light. So that when out of that, out of that you do some good deeds, people say, God must be real to this person because everything I see around them would incline me to get out of here. Out of this marriage, out of this church, out of this business, out of this relationship, out of this situation. I'm out of here. And that person is in there, faithful, gentle, kind, meek, long-suffering, patient, And happy, even when the tears are rolling down his face. Paul uses that strange phrase, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's my life as a pastor. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There's never a day in my pastoral life I'm not sad. Ever. That's how many people we've got. Somebody's always broken. Somebody's always in the hospital. Some marriage is always in trouble. Some kid is always breaking his parents' heart. Some two saints are always niggling at each other. Always, there's never a day when you're not sad. And rejoicing in it. Because you've got a great reward. And he's working it all together for your good. So... The key to living an unwasted life, a life that counts, is doing the kinds of deeds, and oh, there are 10,000 of them, that will flow from a heart embattled by difficulties and resting in the supreme value of Jesus Christ my great reward. Now, 20 things I don't want you to waste your life in, and we'll see how many we can do. I don't think we'll do them all. We'll just start. I put them in an order that some of my favorite ones are up front, and I don't know whether I can leave out the ones at the end. I promise you I'll read them all anyway. I mean, read the titles, but we'll talk about each of these as we go. So here's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm moving from the essence of the unwasted life, which is so treasuring Christ that He satisfies the soul so that it spills over onto others and he is shown to be more valuable than life itself that's why we exist to show the supreme value of Christ in the universe moving from there through now 
how can I become that kind of person? Answer the gospel. And I just want to underline something we prayed about back in the green room just a few minutes ago. (coughs) One of the guys prayed for you. Don't let them hear these 20 things as burden. It, it, It can be that way. But everything I just said in the last hour is intended to deliver you from hearing it that way. Because the gospel means this, that by simple, childlike, trusting, receiving Christ and being united to him by faith, all that he is for you, he is for you in that union, not your performance. It's the union that enables what I'm about to talk about, not the other way around. The gospel doesn't say, don't waste your life in these areas and he will love you. The gospel says, because he has loved you, forgiven you, justified you, reconciled you, adopted you, now you cannot waste your life in these things. And so, hear a gospel order here. Paul said... Cleanse out the old leaven. Yeast. It's a picture of sin. Cleanse out the old leaven because you are unleavened. That's the gospel. Way of life. The way I preach it to myself is, I can never get victory over any sin except a forgiven sin. That's the order. If I say, I've got to get some victory over this so that it will be forgiven, I don't know the gospel. I don't know Christ. Okay. Number one. I don't have these numbered, so I'm going to be in big trouble. Don't waste your suffering. I may have said enough about that already. We rejoice in hope, Romans 5, 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. When suffering is ordained for you, which it will be, if it's not already, we don't waste it by rejoicing in it because of the hope it is working in us. Tribulation works Patience and patience works approvedness and approvedness works hope and therefore we rejoice. You have to have a huge confidence in the sovereign God to respond like that to suffering. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, Colossians 1.24, for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What Paul means there is When I suffer as an apostle, I am suffering to extend the cross in my suffering and in my language, in my proclamation, so that those for whom Christ died will see how much he loves them in my willingness to suffer to reach them. Story after story in missions I could tell you about this. Missionaries must suffer. It's part of the deal. It's part of the package. Because we serve a crucified Savior. And those who've never seen Him will see His pain in our pain. And what He endured in coming into the world to save sinners, we endure by going to Afghanistan, Indonesia, China, North Korea. And people see the sufferings and know the Savior. So we don't lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, for we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, namely Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so we don't waste our aging. We don't waste our eyes going bad and... My ears, my wife thinks I have a hearing problem. I don't know why she thinks I have a hearing problem. She's not speaking up these days. You don't waste that. 
Number two, don't waste your global calamities. There will be more, and they will hit far closer home. You think, you know, a little San Luis Obispo is out of the way, you're safe. You're not. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. They did not repent or give him glory, meaning they wasted it. Verse 10 of Revelation 16. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They wasted their pain. They wasted their calamity. Your calamities are meant to drive you to God. Pastors, you must speak of this when it comes. The radio stations will call you, the people will call you, and they will say, what is the meaning of this bridge collapsing? What is the meaning of these towers falling? What is the meaning of these students shooting each other? What is the meaning of my son's legs being blown off in Iraq? And you better not wimp out on them. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, here this is, this is the global meaning of calamity, AIDS, malaria, 3,000 people a day dying of something that my wife with the little pill as she heads to Africa can overcome in a minute. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, which means that when the calamity comes, we be swept away as well. No guarantee that Christians won't be blown up, get disease, be mowed down by the terrorist. No guarantee. What we know about these things is that the creation is groaning because God sentenced the creation to groaning. He subjected the creation to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of Him who subjected it in hope. What hope? Hope that this is like a woman in labor. The upheavals of tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes and tornadoes and hurricanes and Katrinas is birth pangs. That's the way the Bible talks about them. And in the meantime, what God has done is to say to the world, nobody in this world is emotionally distraught at the moral outrage of their sin, but they are distraught about the pain of suffering that comes when 300,000 people are swept away in Bangladesh by a flood. They're angry about that, but not about their sin. And the point of that is a parable about the moral outrage of sin. I mean, have you ever asked? If Adam and Eve sinned morally with choices that were evil, why is it that their bodies paid the price? Globalize that. 
If the sin of mankind is the problem, and sin is a heart that prefers things over God, why is flesh paying the price? Why disease? Why death? Answer, parable. Symbol. Pointer. We feel flesh consequences. We don't give a rip about spiritual consequences. If God's going to get at us, He'll get us through our skin. And He's getting at the world big time. And what do they do? They did not repent of their deeds. Here's a positive one from Revelation 11. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. They didn't waste it. They didn't waste the calamity. Help Central California not waste the next calamity by leading them in repentance. NPR called me on the phone the day after the tsunami. And they said, give us a Baptist perspective. I said, I don't know what the Baptist perspective is, but I'll give you a biblical perspective. When the Tower of Siloam fell on 18 people, and when Pilate slaughtered worshipers in Jerusalem, I didn't shout into the phone. <laughs> but I did say this. People called Jesus on the phone from NPR and said, uh, talk to us about this. And Jesus said to the reporter on the other end of the phone, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's the word to you, ma'am. And to the world. I will lead my church this Sunday in repentance. That's the point of the tsunami. Repent, world! Repent, or you'll all be swept away like this. Don't waste it. It's all meant to point to God's willingness to take us and rescue us from the deluge. Number three, don't waste your money. You have money as a steward, not as an owner. You don't own anything, nothing, not even your bodies. God owns you. You are a steward. Get all ownership, at least in your relationship with God, not man, but in your relationship with God, get it out of your head. You don't own anything. You're a manager. You're a broker. Which means that this money that you have is wasted when it doesn't achieve the purposes of its owner, which is God. What's his purpose? His purpose is that you use money in such a way that it will be plain that his son is more valuable than money. That's why you have money. You have money so that the way you use it will show that Jesus is more valuable than money. How do you do that? That's the challenge of your life in America. Do you think that way? Do you think that way? What I buy, what I support, will it show? Can I make a purchase in such a way that it will show I value Jesus more than this thing I'm buying? That's not easy, and that is why we have money. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven, hell, sex, or any other sin. Only the kingdom of God gets more attention than money. Let me just read you a slew of texts. 
When Jesus came into the world, a turn in redemptive history happened. In the Old Testament, it was by and large a come-see religion. So we build a magnificent temple so that from all the ends of the earth, people will come and say, Wow, you must have a great God. That is over. Christianity is a go-tell religion and there is no geographic center anywhere on the planet. Nobody's coming to Christianity in a place. They're coming to Christianity a person and he is accessible everywhere on the planet or in space. And therefore, our whole concept of money changes. Because if you have a come-see mentality, you build the biggest monument you can for people to come see. And if you have a go-tell mentality, you strip down to a wartime lifestyle to maximize the money for those missionaries. At any cost, we will send hundreds and hundreds of thousands of our sons and daughters. And if they never come home, we will say, that was a life well spent. And my money to keep them there was the greatest investment I ever made. So... When you read about money in the Bible, there is this relentless New Testament drive towards wartime simplicity. I use the phrase wartime simplicity rather than just simplicity because if you only think simplicity, like back in the 70s and 80s when I was hearing people talk about simplicity, like, you know, go to Idaho and grow potatoes and carrots and don't put any, you know, any chemicals on them and be simple, that's saving nobody little teeny piece of the planet while people drop off the edge of eternity into hell simplicity by itself is neither here nor there the question is is it wartime simplicity back in the second world war you didn't throw bobby pins away and if you lost one this did happen during a basketball game Everybody got down until they found it. Put it back in the hair, get on with the game. Because metal was for the cause. The Queen Mary was transformed into a troop carrier. And where once there had been one bunk and ten place settings and luxury everywhere... Now there were ten bunks stacked on top of each other and ten plates because we got a war to win overseas. And everybody's sacrificing. The lifestyles, you don't use your car the same way. Things are being rationed. That's the mentality we should have. Totally countercultural in America. Put a cap on your lifestyle or it will take you over. How would you do that if you were writing 30 books with royalties? How would you do that? One way, my way, is you sign away the royalties from the get-go on every book and create a foundation to accomplish Goals that magnify Jesus. I get zero royalties for one simple reason. I'm scared of them. Because the Bible says it is hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And I want to go to heaven more than I want to be rich. Ten thousand times. I hate the desire to be rich that creeps up in my heart. You know, I hear the church talking about three, four percent raise. I wonder what that means. It means you give more. That's what it means if you got a cap set. I've got the house I need. I don't need another house. This bathroom does not need to be remodeled for another decade or three. It's got a toilet. It's got a sink. Believe it or not, hot water comes out when you turn the switch. So does the shower. And this little wooden case that we got when we were married still has got drawers. And they go in and out just fine. This is good enough. I just plead with you. I just plead with you. Watch out your reading of airplane magazines. 
and every other kind of magazine there is on the planet. Except maybe a few radical, crazy lifestyle issue magazines that might help you. Oh, that you would be free from the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. So I said I was going to read a few of these. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Woe to you rich, for you have received your consolation. Luke 20, 6, 20. Luke 8, 14. They are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Luke 9, 58. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke 12, 15. A person's life does not consist in his possessions. Matthew 6, 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust cor- uh, uh, destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That means use your money to make your reward greater in heaven, which means give it away to causes that magnify Jesus. Matthew 6.25, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you should eat or what you should drink, or about your body, what you should put on. The Lord knows that you need all these things. Luke 12.31, Seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Luke 12.33, Sell your possessions, give alms, provide yourselves with purses in heaven. Luke 14.33, Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Got to renounce it all. Renounce it all. It's all yours. I'm done. Anything you want, it's yours. No one said that any of these things was his, but they had everything in common. 2 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul describes his ministry as unknown, yet well-known, dying, and behold, we live, punished, yet not put to death, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Ephesians 4, 28, let him who labors working with his hand, work with his hands that he may have to give to him who is in need. There's, there's the reason you work. You, you work to have to give to him who is in need. Of course, you've got to keep a house over your head and probably need a car. Depending on what you do, you probably need a computer. That's what I mean by wartime lifestyle. You've got to have a B-52. B-52 costs $100 million. Can't win this war without a B-52, so we're going to buy, you know. That's war. That's not ministry. That's war. That's an analogy. First Timothy 6. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Charge the rich in this world to be rich in good deeds. And on and on and on. i got a whole page, but I'll stop. So don't waste your money. Use it in a way that makes Christ look more valuable than money. Number three or four, whatever it is. Don't waste your robbery. I, I can't help but read this because um, my son put it on the blog yesterday, and it came from uh, NPR. Julio Diaz, I'm going to read you the news thing. Julio Diaz um, has a daily routine. Every night, the 31-year-old social worker ends his hour-long subway commute to the Bronx one stop early just so he can eat at his favorite diner one night. Last month, as Diaz stepped off the number six train onto the <coughs> nearly empty platform, uh, things took an unexpected turn. He was walking toward the stairs when a teenage boy approached him, pulled out a knife. Mm, he wants my money. So I just gave him my wallet and told him, here you go. As the teen began to walk away, Diaz told him, hey, wait a minute. You forgot something. If you're going to go robbing people for the rest of the night, you might want to take my coat, keep you warm. The would-be robber looked at his would-be victim uh, like, what's going on here? (laughs) Diaz says, he asked me, why are you doing this? Diaz replied, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then I guess you must really need the money. I mean, all I wanted to do was to get dinner, and if you really want to join me, hey, you're more than welcome. You know, I I just felt maybe you might really need help. Diaz says he and the teen went into the diner, sat at a booth. The manager comes by, the dishwasher comes by, the waitress comes by, and Diaz says hi to all of them. The kid was like, 
you know everybody here? Do you own this place? No, I eat here a lot, Diaz says. He told the team. He says, but you're even nice to the dishwasher. Diaz replied, well, haven't you been taught that you should be nice to everybody? Yeah, but I didn't think people actually behave that way. Diaz asked him what he wanted out of life. He just had an almost sad face. The teen couldn't answer or didn't want to. When the bill arrived, Diaz told him, uh, look, I guess you're going to have to pay this bill because <laughs> you have my money and, and, and I can't pay for this. So uh, if you give me my wallet back, I'll gladly treat you. The teen didn't even think about it. He returned the wallet. Diaz says, I gave him $20. Figure maybe it will help him. I don't know. Diaz says he asked for something in return. The teen's knife. He gave it to me. Afterward, when Diaz told his mother what had happened, she said, you're the type of kid that if someone asks you for the time, you give him your watch. <laughs> now, I do not know whether NPR edited Jesus out of this, but it couldn't be clearer where that's coming from. If someone takes your coat, give him your tunic as well. I'm going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. And even if he doesn't know Christ, he's living off Jesus' fumes. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Don't waste your robbery or the rip-off at the corner. What's your plan for the people holding the, holding the signs? Homeless, anything will help. What's your plan? Roll up the window and get a job. Is that helpful? Well, you've, you probably think it is. Maybe you don't. I don't know. i got a plan. My plan is I take these little red books. I think we're giving them away. I don't know. This is for your joy. I take a $1 bill, stick it in the red book. I keep five of them in my glove compartment, and I always open my window. I know I'm being ripped off most of the time. I'm holding out one hope here. If I give them that book, I say, look, here's a book. It's about Jesus. I'm going to give you the book. I hope you'll read it. You can have the dollar. Use it for something besides alcohol or drugs, and in the name of Jesus, bless you, brother. I live in Phillips' neighborhood. It's a, it's a tough neighborhood. Vince came to the door. I'm going to give you a failure story and a success story here just to show you how I try to think through not wasting my, my robberies or my, my rip-offs. Um, I've taken Vince... Who's, who's, who's drunk most of the time. I've taken Vince to get glasses. I've taken Vince to get uh, art supplies. I said, if you will draw my house, I will pay you enough money you can live on. Just, you say you're an artist? Draw, draw. I'm trying to find meaning for this guy. He comes on Good Friday, absolutely stone, unable to hardly stand up drunk. And he's hungry. I said, you make me so mad, Vince. I go get him something to eat. Put, the, put it in the bag, hand it to him, and he sprawled out on my front porch, okay? And a two-liter bottle of vodka, about one-third empty. I drop the food out and take the bottle and bring it in shut the door. He comes to in a minute or two and goes absolutely ballistic. Where's my bottle? Why'd you steal my bottle? Pounding the window. My little girl goes into hysterics. I said, you don't need to worry. He's harmless. I really think he is. He's drunk. I can take a drunk guy anytime. <laughs> so I say, Lord, I what am I supposed to do here? I just don't know how to love this guy. I don't know what love means here. I want to help him, and I don't know what it looks like. Well, I didn't want my front window broken, and he started pounding on the window and not just the door. So I go out my back door with the bottle, walk around to the front, put it on the bench, and say, Vince, clear! Quit pounding on my window. And he stumbles out to me. Why did you take my bottle? I said, okay, here's your bottle. Don't come back here until you're sober. Now, that was Good Friday. I tell you, I felt colossally bad about that. 
My wife thought I did exactly what I should do. She was a great defender, she didn't, but I didn't. So I got down on my face that night. I said, Lord, my heart, my, it was my heart I'm going to turn out. Practically, maybe I did the right thing. I don't know. But my heart was mainly angry. It was mainly angry. And I'd like my heart to be some angry and mainly love. <laughs> and I, I just said to the Lord, uh, forgive me for whatever in that was not of you, not helpful, not displaying the value of Jesus. And if you would, give me another chance. That's dangerous to ask the Lord for another chance. <laughs> oh. So, now it's Saturday. My little girl, 12-year-old, and I always do Pizza Hut. This is the same Pizza Hut thing. This is the same day, same story I was telling you about. So we go to Pizza Hut, and when we're done, we walk out, and here comes Tony. I don't know Tony, but that's his name. I remember it. And he's got his story. I've been on the streets and kind of hungry, and when can you help me out? I said, okay, um, Talitha, why don't you get in the car? I don't have any money. I didn't. I don't care money, for, precisely for these reasons. Um, well, I'll do in the car, little $5 things in the book. But I say, I got no money, but I got a credit card. What do you want, pizza? Want a pizza? Sure. So I come in, and we're standing in line. Get the pizza deal. What does it cost? Five bucks for special, you know, personal pan, breadsticks, Coke, five bucks. Not, I will not feel this, right? I will not feel the loss of $5 out of my Visa account. And while we're standing there, I say to him, you know what today is? No. You know what tomorrow is? No. You know what yesterday was? No. Do you know where this gift is coming from? And he goes, I said, no. He's got a name. He's got a name. His name is Jesus, and he died yesterday, and he rose tomorrow for you. And just, I had about three, four minutes to share the gospel with him. Just unloaded everything I could on this guy standing in Pizza Hut. <laughs> He was, he was not drunk. He was taking it all in. And, and uh, I just paid for his pizza. I said, uh, it's for this guy, not me. Got his breadsticks. I handed them to him and said, tomorrow, he rose from the dead. He's the one who gave this. Now, I went home, and I, I felt wonderful, mainly because the Lord answered my prayer. He gave me another chance. Those two stories are just to say, Failure, success, um, my stuff is not mine. I want somehow to use it for his great name. Well, how many have we covered? Three, four? Um, and time is, I think I've got three minutes left. No, thank you, but we, we'll do Q&A and... We'll see how they come out. Maybe the first question will be, finish the message. <laughs> um, um, I'll tell you what the titles are, and then we can decide what to do. Don't waste your compassion. Got an issue there with liberal and conservative compassion. Don't waste your enemies. Don't waste your aging. Don't waste your retirement. There is no such thing. Don't waste your youth. Don't waste your sexuality. Don't waste your marriage. It was created for the glory of Christ. Don't waste your singleness. Don't waste your prayers. Don't waste your prominence. Don't waste your spiritual gifts. Don't waste your racial diversity. Don't waste your cultural diversity. Don't waste the call to stay put. Don't waste the call to move on. And don't waste your death. So what I'm going to do is stop and pray, let you take a little break, think about this, and you can decide what questions you're going to ask when I come back in about five, uh, 15 minutes. So let's pray. Father in heaven, there are ways in all of those relationships to magnify your infinite worth or not. If we do, if we display the value of Jesus to a Tony or a Vince, we are not wasting our lives no matter what we've been ripped off. 
And if we focus on ourselves, pad our lives, multiply our riches, live for earthly comforts and securities, we will waste our lives. So I'm pleading with you now that you not let that happen for these friends here. May they know the essence of the unwasted life. May they know the origin in the gospel of the unwasted life. And may they know the appearance of the unwasted life as it works itself out in the manifold ways of Christ-exalting, soul-satisfying, sacrificial love for other people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.